0: The number one financial destination, YahooFinance.com.
1: Boris Johnson undertook his first major overseas trip as prime minister this week when he spoke to the UN General Assembly about why now is the moment to tackle climate change.
2: Kermit the Frog sang,
3: "It's not easy being green." You remember that one? I want you to know that he was wrong.
0: He was wrong. It is easy. It's not only easy, it's lucrative, and it's right to be green. He he was also unnecessarily rude to Miss
1: Piggy, I thought, uh, Kermit the Frog. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be analysing the UK Prime Minister's trip to America, that address to the UN that you heard at the top, his one to ones with President Joe Biden and the health of the so called special relationship. Joining to discuss are our political editor George Parker and political and diplomatic correspondent Laura Hughes. And later, we'll be looking forward to the Labour Party conference in Brighton. Keir Starmer has published a 14,000 word pamphlet setting out his vision for the country, but is anyone listening? Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, will discuss along with our special guest John McTernan, the former Labour Special Advisor and sometimes FT writer. George and Laura, welcome back. Morning. Morning. Well, Laura, let's begin with you. You've just flown back into the UK. You've been
3: on the road with Boris Johnson. What was the experience like? extraordinary but I have to say one of the most bizarre moments I think of my entire life was being in the Oval Office with the Prime Minister with the US President when uh, Joe Biden started telling the PM this anecdote about Amtrak trains which just made absolutely no sense. So I was standing there in the Oval Office thinking I'm listening to the US President I'm in the White House and I'm actually zoning out here desperately trying to follow what Biden was actually trying to say to us but overall it it was an extraordinary trip it's actually the, the best trip I've ever done in this job. And
1: George Parker you've done many of these prime ministerial trips before I don't think any with Boris Johnson but do you have a particular memory that comes to mind
2: that can rival Laura's bizarreness? Well, I remember going once with Tony Blair to the Gaza Strip when Yasser Arafat was in charge there and um, hearing a very heroic attempt to play the British national anthem by a hastily convened band, including someone with the bagpipes. But I think probably my most memorable trip was um, on a trip back from Washington with Gordon Brown, where I won a signed copy by the prime minister of the American version of Monopoly. And this was during the middle of the financial crash. But then an excruciating moment where we were in the huddle, which Laura will know well, where all the journalists gather around the prime minister in very tight confines, and someone mentioned it was my birthday. And as a consequence, Gordon Brown, who was standing about one foot away from me, was compelled to join in every, <laughs> everyone in singing me happy birthday, which is probably one of the most <laughs> awkward moments of his, his life and, and probably mine as well.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sinking into my chair. It's just the image of that. Um, I can picture how bad that would be. Well, yeah, no escape. <laughs> not at all. Well, let's move on to the main topic of the week and this particular foreign trip. Boris Johnson went to America this week with the aim of proving the strength of UK-US ties while furthering his ambitions to be a global champion for tackling climate change. His message was well delivered in Johnsonian style. But on the thing of UK-US relations, things were not necessarily so rosy. There were questions raised about Northern Ireland and also no sign of that free trade deal that Johnson once promised we'd be at the front of the queue
4: for. What we're wanting to do is make solid incremental steps on trade. The Biden administration is not doing free trade deals uh, around the world right now. But I've got absolutely every confidence uh, that a great deal is there to be done. And there are plenty of people in that uh, building behind me uh, who certainly want to do one.
1: Well. well, Laura, let's begin at what Boris Johnson tried to get out of this trip, that he was going to New York for UNGA, the UN General Assembly, where he spoke about climate change with the COP26 summit on the horizon in Glasgow. But he obviously had wider ambitions too. If you take each of the things, how successful would you rate the trip?
3: I think, to be fair to Boris Johnson, actually, In terms of the UK smoothing over its relationship with America after the chaotic withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, previous years where we've had a US president who denies climate change, the fact that we actually got a 90-minute meeting with the president in the White House, when we know that actually Biden was quite keen on just meeting with Boris Johnson on the fringes of the UN, does show a normalisation of relations between the two countries. And there were a number of diplomatic wins that number 10 were pointing to. With a slightly more cynical eye, one could argue that the lifting, for example, of the travel corridor between the US and UK in November was actually just really good timing for Boris Johnson. And he would argue that the UK task force, which has been constantly updating the US on coronavirus data, for example, was instrumental in pushing the US to change the decision. But obviously, the announcement massively took us by surprise on the plane out there during the huddle. The PM said he really didn't think he had any chance of really getting anywhere on this with the president and by chance this was lifted. On climate he was also quite gloomy there saying he thought he had a six out of ten chance of raising more money before COP but then Biden came out and said the US was going to double its financial climate contribution so again you could cite that as a massive win so look overall I think number 10 are feeling pretty buoyed by the trip and the pictures that came out of the two of them it's it's a return to normal and I think that's that's something that they really wanted to see
1: Well, George, let's just be cynical for a moment and think, is this all just expectations management by Boris Johnson on that huddle that Laura talked about saying, you know, travel is going to be very difficult. Climate money is going to be very difficult. And then suddenly you get both of those. and It looks like two hard fought wins and the image of a prime minister returning, having really shown the American president what for.
2: They were genuinely surprised about the travel announcement. I think they would have had a heads up from the White House about the extra money being put into the COP process. I mean, I think it's a bit easy to sort of exaggerate how these were British wins. I mean, these are things that the Americans probably would have done in any event. And bear in mind, the travel restrictions being lifted applied to a whole load of countries, including the whole of the European Union. So it wasn't just a British announcement. But certainly on the on both those things, they were welcome announcements from a British point of view. And as Laura said, you know it was uh, it it was sort of a return to normality after the sort of trauma of the shambolic retreat from Kabul. So I think that was that all went quite well. But if you take one step back on this, you know the big Brexit economic prize was always meant to be this free trade deal with the United States, and that is not going to happen anytime soon. I mean that is that is quite a big setback. That was the front and centre of the economic argument for Brexit, and frankly. Donald Trump was never likely to do a trade deal with the UK and Joe Biden's even less so. And one thing I would say about the this, this mooted trade deal with the United States is worth bearing in mind that though this would be the biggest single free trade agreement by a mile if we ever agreed it it would still only add to the UK GDP about 0.15% of GDP a tiny really, tiny amount and it's important to remember that the thing about trade is the way to boost your trade balance is to sell things and make things that people want to buy around the world rather than free trade agreements.
1: Now, Northern Ireland was an interesting issue on this trip, Law, because that obviously plays into the whole Brexit question. And we know that President Biden is very proud of his Irish heritage and throughout the election campaign, he made it quite clear that if the UK did anything to breach the Good Friday Agreement, that would lead to a severe damaging of transatlantic relations and certainly no Brexit trade deal. Now, there was a bit of debate about whether this did or did not come up, that some diplomats were briefing that actually it didn't come up in the meetings between President Biden and Johnson. But then in the official readout, there was an indication it did. What's your take on it?
3: Just before they had their private meeting, one of our journalists asked The president about this and her question was very much are we not getting a trade deal anytime soon because of the prime minister's position on northern ireland and it was at that moment that it was addressed and i think when they went back behind the scenes to have this meeting it was decided by sort of team biden actually that they would already covered it and that he'd already received reassurances from the pm that he, he wasn't going to jeopardize peace in northern ireland Perhaps it was to save some blushes on on either side. I mean, really, what more could Boris Johnson actually say? And perhaps there's also an awareness from the American side that maybe they don't entirely trust the UK Prime Minister when he talks about this issue. And so it's better to wait and see what happened. In terms of whether or not that's the reason we're not getting an immediate trade deal, I think realistically, it's more likely that actually we have the midterms next November uh, where the president could lose his majority. And so he's trying to get through a whole raft of domestic legislation. And really, it is not his priority to do any sort of deal with us. And I think Boris Johnson knows that. But as you said, this trade deal, whilst it's not worth anything, a bit like the fish issue during the Brexit referendum debate, it's incredibly emotive. And the reason I think the UK press continue to push on him and the president about this issue is because it was lauded as the biggest win by the Brexit campaign by Boris Johnson, who said we'd easily get one. And I think UK officials who have been out there meeting their US counterparts this week have been trying to really raise the point with the US that actually the UK has a better trading relationship at the moment with countries like Mexico and Canada, and that's crazy. We should be doing more with the US. But as George points out, we've known for a very long time, it's, it's not worth that much to our economy. It's the symbolism of it. Now,
1: George, what did you make of the climate change element of this? Because we heard that clip at the top of the programme from uh, Boris Johnson quoting Kermit the Frog and why it's not easy being green and saying that, in fact, it is easy being green. And obviously, we know how he does rhetoric. And I'm sure one can have a debate about whether the UN General Assembly is necessarily the place for such metaphors. But he did get very strong financial commitments from the US. And also, China announced while he was there that they will stop building any overseas coal power stations. And if you put all that together, it does look as if the world is moving in the right direction on this. And it tees up Boris Johnson for potentially some good wins at the COP26 summit in Glasgow, because for him, that's a big moment to project what he wants global Britain to be, which is a convening power, a power based on its values and a power based on its arguments opposed to its military might.
2: Yes, I mean, I think the UK has got a good story to tell on the environment. And I think Boris Johnson's been making that point. There's still some tough decisions for the UK to make on how we go about meeting our own targets, particularly on the question of heating houses and who bears the cost of that and whether it's going to add to the cost of living crisis. But in international terms, you're right, uh, Seb, that the American announcement this week was warmly welcomed. The Chinese deciding not to build any more coal power stations on their so-called Belt and Road projects outside of China. That's extremely welcome as well. So I think by the time we get to Glasgow at the beginning of November, there will be enough there for Boris Johnson to be able to claim that the summit was a success. I don't think they're going to go anywhere near far enough to have all the commitments in place to meet the ambitious targets to get to net zero. And I think that will be the big disappointment. I think they'll have to come up with some sort of pathway or roadmap to getting there and a pathway to another summit to discuss all that. But on things like coal and cars... I think there will be some progress. So I think there will be enough, certainly for Boris Johnson to be able to say the whole thing wasn't a failure. And in fact, probably for it to be something of a success.
1: Law, one of the things that George and I have been looking at back here at home, and I think you've been keeping a close eye on your travels as well, is AUKUS, the new defence relationship between Australia, the UK and the US to provide some nuclear submarines to Australia to try and combat the threat of China. This obviously deal was announced last week. It was obviously a big diplomatic win for the UK to be involved in this new relationship. And if you're a Conservative MP, this is basically everything you want, being closer to America, closer to Australia and annoying the French at the same time. What have been the diplomatic reverberations of that? Because France obviously withdrew its ambassador from America and Australia. President Joe Biden has now had a slight rapprochement with Emmanuel Macron. But we're still trying to pick out exactly how substantial this thing is, what the UK's role in it is, and what it's going to mean for Anglo-French relations.
3: This is the argument rumbling on below the surface throughout the last week. Our understanding is that Actually, both the US President and the UK Prime Minister were pretty astonished at the French reaction. And there is some belief amongst UK officials that the French are really hamming up their anger in the hope of perhaps getting some sort of concessions later on down the line. Clearly, the PM is becoming increasingly exasperated by Macron and their stance. At the beginning of the week, he was telling us how much he loved the French and how strong our relationship was. And then two days ago, in Washington, he sort of seemed to lose it a bit when he said in French that Macron should give him a break and chill out, basically. And that's the general feeling. They really felt as though the Australians had given a heads up to the French. I think there's also a belief that maybe French intelligence wasn't great here. Did they not really see this coming? I think whatever the PM tries to say, clearly this is really interesting on a number of levels because the Brits believe that Macron might be Biden's man in Europe. That actually those two, as political leaders, were a lot more aligned, had had a better, closer relationship than Biden does with Johnson. And the fact that the Americans have been willing to go behind the French back in this way, and to annoy them on this level, should actually be considered a bit of a warning shot to the Brits that the Americans mean business, their domestic priorities take priority, and they're not scared or worried about alienating allies in Europe. So I think that slightly worries us in some level, but equally, we're in the club. So we're happy to be there and Johnson's been really hailing this as a a manifestation of global Britain and what it means, the fact that we are a really big, substantial player. We'll see exactly what the UK's role is in this. But for now, the fact we've been included is being hailed a massive success and clearly worth jeopardising French relations when we know we have the issue of migrant crossings. And we also have a lot of French anger about the Brexit Northern Ireland protocol, two things that the French are probably going to be even tougher Mm. on now, given the way we've treated them.
1: And finally, George, when prime ministers often go overseas, they've got these big grand agendas. But actually, the things that matter the most are what are happening back at home. And I think this trip was no exception for Boris Johnson, that aside from the questions about trade deal, Northern Ireland and climate change, A lot of the trips can be peppered with questions about the ongoing energy crises back at home, that we've got the question about this CO2 production with plants closing and questions raised about whether there's going to be food shortages. The HGV driver shortage is also starting to affect fuel supplies or the meanwhile this question raising are we about to face a big cost of living crisis this winter and what's that going to mean for Boris Johnson do you think this is serious or is it just a kind of a slight blip and the market will work itself out as the prime minister suggested when he was asked about this
2: in new york i think it's potentially very serious for the government there are a lot of things here which are frankly out with the government's control although lots of people of course would like to blame it all on brexit the truth is that the supply chain crisis and fuel crises There are many, many causes for that. But if a government is in charge of a country where things are starting to go wrong in a fairly obvious way, where the petrol isn't arriving and the shelves in the supermarkets are starting to show gaps, or you can't get your Christmas presents for your kids... People will look for someone someone to blame. And the most obvious people to blame here will be the government. And just thinking back to the fuel shortages or the fuel crisis when Tony Blair was prime minister, it was the only moment where William Hague's hapless leadership of the Tory party um, showed signs of overtaking Tony Blair at that point. The public don't like the idea of chaos in their country. So at the moment, I'm told that um, Tory MPs say that their mail from constituents is still running at a well below the sort of levels which would cause them alarm about the cost of living crisis. Um, One MP said that he's getting about 5% of the amount of emails that he used to get uh, about Dominic Cummings's ill-fated trip to Barnard Castle, which is used as a bit of a benchmark now for constituency anger. But if you speak to Tory strategists, they say at the moment, people kind of know there's a problem coming. But so far, prices aren't rising all that sharply. But, you know, they're a huge Issues on the way. The Bank of England this week said it feared that inflation go, could go above 4%. Food and energy prices we know are going to shoot up very, very quickly. And that puts an awful lot of pressure on the government to do something to alleviate it. Now, Rishi Sunak has a budget coming up on October the 27th. At the moment, he's trying to hang tough. And the hope in the Treasury is that a lot of these things are just temporary blips, as you mentioned, Seb, that the inflationary shock will pass through the system very quickly, that the energy price spike will also ease in the, in the spring. But I think he'll be under a lot of pressure in in the awesome budget to do something solid to show that he's listening and he's aware of the problems. And we know that, uh, for example, Therese Coffey, the work and pension secretary, wants him to help people who are about to lose that £20 a week uplift in universal credit, possibly by changing the so-called taper rate. There are other things he could do and things like the warm homes discount. But I think he will want to show that he's listening and he understands, because otherwise, you know, may be unfair on governments, but if you're in charge when your country starts to slide into something which looks a little bit like a winter of discontent, then you're in trouble.
1: Well, I'm sure that's a parallel Boris Johnson does not want to make. And I spoke to one cabinet minister this week and we were reflecting on the US trip and all these crises. And they sort of said to me, you know what, this could actually be as good as it gets for Boris Johnson for some time. And things could get very difficult, a very tricky six months. But really, with Labour still in the bit of the wilderness, he doesn't have to worry too much, which takes us on to our next topic. George and Laura, thank you very much. Pierre Starmer is off to Brighton this weekend for his first in-person Labour conference as leader. It's a decisive moment for him where he will try and signal what and how he intends to rebuild Labour after its appalling 2019 election defeat. But instead of facing outwards, this conference will be focused inwards as Starmer has used this moment to try and change the party's rules for electing its leaders. Steve Reed, a prominent member of the Labour Shadow Cabinet, said that proposed changes to leadership rules were about pivoting Labour away from its membership and towards voters. He told the BBC,
2: "The members are fantastic. They're the lifeblood of our party. They're knocking on doors week in week out, but when we're running up to an election, we need to be talking to the voters, not our own members, and that's not what happens under the current rules."
1: But well, Jim Picard, it's great to have you back on the podcast as always. Before we get into this tit for tat about leadership rules, do you agree with that broad analysis of this conference being an important one for Keir Starmer? He became leader in April 2020. They had a virtual conference last year and he hasn't really done that much to speak to the party and signal how it's changed from the 2019 election and the Corbyn era.
4: It's interesting that you used the phrase talk to the party about, about change. I think he's much more keen to be talking to the country at large and not the party so the the sort of focus of what they're trying to do I suppose is you know under the Corbyn leadership everyone in Corbyn's camp got massively excited that the the membership nearly tripled in size to more than half a million there was this incredible energy from particularly young people you go to the World Transformed Festival at conference which was a sort of parallel operation you you could feel this, this sort of amazing sense of optimism for the future from these people who thought they were going to change the world. And then, of course, they ran into the reality, electoral reality in 2019, when the party had its worst defeat for nearly a century, as they came to the realisation that these ideas that they were excited about was not necessarily something that the rest of the country was excited about. And Keir Starmer wants to pivot to the kind of what you might call normal people, who are not that interested in politics and take a a passing interest in it. And if you go back to 20, if you want to know about the gulf between what a lot of the membership think and what a lot of the public think, you only have to go back to the 2019 conference, also in Brighton, just before that election defeat. You have to remember that the membership pushed through policies such as literally no immigration controls in Britain whatsoever, and the policy of net zero, not by 2050, but by 2030, which is something that experts and and business think is is literally impossible just to give you some sense of, of why he wants to stop listening to the members and listen to other people instead John McTernan, it's great to have you back on
1: the podcast. How significant is this conference for Starmer? Because obviously, we're almost two years since the last general election. There's still some way to run before the next polls come along. But he, ever since he became Labour leader, he's got this new management slogan where he seemed to be tough on anti-Semitism, routing out people from the party who have views that are deemed unacceptable. He's got this ongoing war with Jeremy Corbyn, who's still not in the PLP, although he's still a Labour Party member. And I guess he wants to try and stamp some authority on his leadership and explain what it's all about.
5: It's a really important conference for Starmer. The main reason is it's his first chance to dominate the news and therefore address the public directly. That's really what party conference offers you. Although party members think it's about them, it's really about the public and about the voters because the news, uh, the six, uh, the 10, uh, all the bulletins during the day carry pictures of your conference and what you're discussing. That's why it's so damaging uh, when a Corbynite agenda was portrayed all across the, uh, the the airwaves at the last of the uh, Corbyn conferences. That's why it's a critical moment for Starmer. The thing is, becoming leader in the pandemic, he's never really had this chance yet. This is his, you know, really, la- last year should have been his first conference to introduce himself to the country. This conference should be showing the team that's going to go to the next election. The next conference should be showcasing the policies. He's had to crush it all together. He's reshuffled his team, did that before Johnson did his. He's got the shadow chancellor who's going to go, Rachel Reeves is going to go into the election with him. He's really got to set a tone, so is she, about what kind of party this is. Uh, So he's talking to the public. People at conference are talking to each other. The question is, does he stamp his authority, not simply on the conference but also does he stamp his authority in the in the minds of the viewers and the listeners? Well, Jim. If he does want to
1: speak to the country, that's probably not what the main news headlines are going to be initially from the conference because he has started Mr. to push through some rule changes to the Labour Party, particularly with a view to how it elects its leaders. That Ed Miliband back in their uh, 2013, 2014, introduced Omar, one member, one vote, which means that Labour MPs, trade union delegates and Labour members all have equal weighting in how the party chooses its leaders. And this was seen as helpful to Jeremy Corbyn when he was elected leader in 2015 and what Keir Starmer is doing is going back to the old electoral college system where there is a sort of block vote between MPs, trade unions and members and this is something that's been urged by I think the Blairite wing of the party as well as other people on the traditional Labour right saying that this will ensure in any future leadership contest it's not entirely beholden to members. Why is Starmer picking this fight now and crucially is he going to win
4: it? So he is trying to do a clause for a moment. You'll remember back in 1994, Tony Blair changed Labour's policy from basically no no longer accepting mass nationalisation of all industry. And it was a deliberate message to the rest of the country that Labour was no longer in in hock to the left. And Keir is trying to do something very similar here. Raising two questions. Firstly, can he get it through? Secondly, will the public care or notice? And The biggest complaint made so far by the left and by union leaders, including some of the union leaders that do privately back these changes, are that there's terrible timing because we find ourselves in the last couple of days immersed in this massive cost of living crisis. Uh, Some of us have been aware it's coming down the tracks for quite a few weeks, but the reality of it hitting home right now that we've got gas prices going up in October and probably again in April we've got inflation mounting, we've got unemployment likely to spike when the furlough scheme is removed at the end of September. We also have the removal of uh, universal credit uplift, and we also have next increase coming in a few months time. So in terms of the labor leadership being presented with an open goal for which to kick the government, this you would have thought would be it. And so a lot of people are saying on the left that this is not the time to be doing these changes. Can he get it through? I think it's it's possible. You know, there's been a sort of public dislike of reforms from union leaders saying this isn't the time, let's delay it. What, what's basically happening is union leaders don't want to admit that they want to disenfranchise members, but behind closed doors, some of them, that's precisely what they'd like because it gives more power to union members instead. So, I mean, it, it, I would say it's on a knife edge. It could still be pulled. It will go onto the floor, I think, on um, Sunday or Monday, and who knows which way the the vote will go. All I do know is that Keir Starmer's team think that the makeup of those attending conferences, roughly 60-40 pro-Keir Starmer in general terms, that doesn't mean necessarily they will support this specific policy. Well, John, the argument about this is people
1: on the left are saying that this shows Keir Starmer is a busted flush and that people in the party are already thinking about a future leadership contest and trying to ensure that someone from the left of the party who's very popular with the members doesn't necessarily win there. But is it about that, do you think? Or is it about trying to show that decisive break and that Labour is more pivoted towards voters as opposed to the party, as we heard Steve Reed arguing at the top. And what's your assessment on whether he will succeed on this?
5: Well, look, there's no better way to prove that you've pivoted from Corbynism than to say and to show and to demonstrate no Corbyn ever again. That's the purpose of these reforms. The left are right to be up in arms about them because they are designed to exclude them from the possibility of leadership In fact, all the reforms have meant to be such that the PLP could exclude Corbyn or a Corbyn-like figure. It's just that the PLP got sloppy and lazy and got into lending their votes and all this nonsense about a wide debate in the party. This is strong leadership. The party will decide between the PLP and the unions, who is the next leader of the party. Uh, and that's right, because we are a party of the unions, a party for the unions, a party by the unions, and the unions need a Labour Party in government. That, in the end, is why I believe this will get through, because the GMB and Unison and ASDA, the three big unions who are not unite and who have huge importance in terms of organising in uh, in, in the public sector and the private sector, their unions who understand that their members actually need a change of government. And it's all very well for there to be people who believe on the left that the, we, you can win the battle of ideas without winning the battle of votes. In the end, the Labour Party exists, you know, it, it's the, the fa- in its foundation, but also in its constitution, it exists to win elections. So I think this is important for, for Keir to do and I heard what, what Jim was saying about why people say now is not the time. Everybody, in my experience, who opposes change always says now is not the time. What they mean is it will never be the time. There'll be plenty of opportunities, uh, and there have been this week, and there will be the week after conference, there will be even during conference, plenty of opportunities to attack the government on the cost of living. That issue is not going away, and you don't actually need to lead the witness to you. You don't need to tell the voters there's a cost of living crisis coming you know people aren't going to go do you know what i was getting a bit worried about the cost of living and nicks and the gas prices and energy prices generally but you know labor haven't raised it at their annual conference so i don't think it's a real issue so i don't really think i'll blame the government for it
1: well jim to sort of tee up this conference kia has written this pamphlet 14 000 word piece for the fabian society setting out his views on what he's learned from traveling around the country and how labor can uh, reconnect. You're, a lot of people have been critical of its length and the fact that some of it might be sort of slightly disconnected from actual hard policies. But the thing that struck me the most about the pamphlet, having read it back to back on Thursday, is that a lot of it all seems quite sensible, quite down the road. But apart from the trade union stuff, you could imagine Boris Johnson saying almost everything in that pamphlet about families, about security, about the economy, about investment, about fairness. And for me, it raised this question, OK, that's all fine. But how are you going to differentiate yourself from Boris Johnson? And how do you think that's going to play into the conference?
4: Yeah. And I, I've heard this theory elsewhere that you could imagine Boris Johnson saying it I kind of disagree having, having read large chunks of the essay, in that it's written in a fairly flat sort of way. Boris Johnson would probably write it in a more whimsical way. He'd, he'd make more stabs at humor. He would try to sort of avoid some of the slightly policy wonk language in there. I accept that, in terms of sort of center groundness, then you could just swap them interchangeably. But I I, don't, I I think it'd be a mistake to say that it sounds like Boris Johnson's voice because it really doesn't. It, it definitely sounds and looks like a, a classic Fabian pamphlet. The um the most striking thing I think our listeners need to know about this essay is the fact that it mentions business 29 times, almost all positively. And there are zero mentions of socialism, socialist, nationalised, public ownership, comrades, Corbyn, anything like that. So You know, they they know that this isn't going to be read by the the general public at large. It's more just a kind of setting out where he's coming from. I thought it was more readable than than some people suggested it was deadly. dull. I I thought it was reasonably readable. I still think he needs to add an awful lot more definition of what, what he intends to do, because, you know, the problem for the Blairites is that, you know, their trump card has always been you may not like what we're doing, you may not like are focus on swing voters, patriotism, pro-business views and ignoring core Labour membership instead as, because it's all about winning elections. It's all about win, win, win and you can't do anything unless you're in power. You can only shout from the sidelines if you're in opposition and that of course is true. But when you have someone pursuing a Blairite path who isn't making much traction in the polls and doesn't seem to be that popular then questions will arise. And and I was looking at some polling this morning. I think um, YouGov and they were sort of tracking whether whether the public thought that Kirsten was was performing well or badly as leader of the opposition. And the last figure for the end of August was 59% thought he was doing badly, only 22% thought he was doing well.
5: Don't tell the people uh, that the government's failing. Let them come to that conclusion. They will then come to you if you have an alternative. There is an alternative, and it is that Keir is offering security. That may be boring, but maybe make politics boring again is the slogan that that, uh, is very attractive to the centre-ground of British politics.
1: Well, Jim and John, thank you very much for joining us, and that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then please subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels where you get your podcasts, be it Apple, Spotify or Google. And if you're feeling happy this weekend, then you could give us a nice review. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon, the sound engineers of Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next time, thanks for listening.